Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Osband, here with my friend, Chavruta and Gordon. Our daf today, Masech Nidarim, daf Peitet, page 89. Well, we're in our last three dafim of Masech Nidarim. We will be having our seum today. Uh, we know we're doing it a couple days early uh, at 10 a.m. Uh, on East Coast time, 5 p.m. Israel time. We hope all of you will be joining us. If not, there will be a recording uh, that will be available after the Siyam. Um And uh, everybody should start thinking about Masachet Nazir, which we're going to be starting next. I'm going to be starting on the bottom of Pechet with a Mishnah. And we actually have three Mishnahs to do today. I'll do the first two and Anne will do the third one. V'nadar so again, the mission is going to deal with um, how a husband is allowed to revoke his wife's vows. And here they quote the pasuk uh, that said that the neder of a widow or a divorcee shall remain upon her. So this is from Bamidbar chapter 30, verse 10. Again, that's our chapter that we're dealing with that deals with the revoking of nedarim by a father or by a husband. And so the question is, Kate said, right? Why do we need this verse? What does it come to teach us? Let's say a widow or divorcee says, I will be in Nizira after 30 days. Let's say she remarries within those 30 days, right? So in other words, it's January 1st. She says, okay, I'm going to be a Nazir in 30 days. So that means it would take effect on January 31st. Let's say she get, gets married on January 15th. Would the new husband be allowed to revoke that law, that vow? And so that nedzer. And it says, The husband cannot revoke her vow. Um, okay, so that piece is basically teaching us that if the woman's marital status changes between she, the time she took the vow and when it takes effect, it's the status of when she said the vow, when she said the nedzer, that is actually important. Now we have another ruling that's similar to this. So if a woman made a vow while she was in her husband's domain, right, he can revoke it. Kate said, If she says, I should be a nizira after 30 days, the husband revokes the vow. Then let's say, Within those 30 days, she becomes widowed or divorced, meaning before the vow even took effect. It is still revoked because at the time that she made the nadar, he was able to revoke the vow and he revoked the vow. Um, and then finally, they give a third case. Let's say she makes a vow on the day that she gets married. And then she also gets divorced on the same day. And then her husband takes her back. So she gets married, divorced, married. He is not allowed to revoke that vow. This is the rule. If she goes out of her domain, meaning she's not married for a moment, the husband can no longer revoke the vow. And so essentially what this mission is saying is, is that the time at which the vow was said, right, not when it takes effect, that seems to be key. And so the Gemara begins with a brisa that is essentially a machloket of Rabbi Yishmael and Rabbi Akiva. Again, we had this a couple days ago, right, that they have very different ways of reading the psukim. And this seems to be this Mishnah, the opinion of Rabbi Akiva, that it's the time of the vow. What was her status when she made the vow? That seems to be important. So if she made the vow when she was widowed or divorced, but the vow maybe won't take effect until she's remarried, it doesn't make a difference. That new husband is not allowed to revoke the vow. 
let's say she made the vow while she was married, but when the vow takes effect, she ends up being widowed or divorced. The husband was allowed to revoke the vow because at the time when she made it, she was actually uh, she was actually married. Um, Rabbi Shmuel has a different opinion. Rabbi Shmuel actually believes, if you read this Machlokas and the Brisa, that it actually has to do with when the vow takes effect. And that's essentially what the Gemara is going to spend time on, is quoting this Brisa and trying to understand this Machlokas between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shmuel. And then finally, what they want to do is, is then, uh, since it seems to be that this Mishnah is, you know, the view of Rabbi Akiva is presented in this Brisa that they quote, they want to actually say, could we say that the Mishnah actually goes with Rabbi Yishmael as well? Amar of Chista, Matninam Rabbi Akiva. He write the ton of our Mishnah is Rabbi Akiva, not Rabbi Yishmael. Abayamar Afilu Tema Rabbi Yishmael. You could even say that our Mishnah could agree with Rabbi Yishmael. And how does he explain it? Matninam Tlalia Nafshe Biyome. Our Mishnah refers to a case when she made herself dependent on the days. It's an exceptional case. She basically says the vow takes effect after a certain number of days. Brighta Tlalia Nafshe Benisuin. Whereas the Brita says she makes herself dependent on the state of her marriage. And because of this different, Abaye basically says about our Mishnah, Shamu Yome Velonit Garsha, in the Mishnah's second case, right, where a married woman says the vow will take effect after 30 days, right, it's possible for those days to be completed without her being divorced. Shamu Yome Velonit Navsva. Whereas in our Mishnah's first case, where a woman was not married, right, and the vow was not scheduled to take effect for 30 days, it's possible for the dates to be completed without her being married. And so that, that's why in the Mishnah, even Rabbi Yishmael would agree that because in those cases, it's possible for that time fulfillment to take place with either her being married or not being married, this would be the exception to Rabbi, Rabbi Yishmael's general principle that it's when the vow takes effect. When it's very time dependent, even Rabbi Yishmael would agree, according to Abaye, that no, it's actually her status that's that's important. And then the, there's one other piece here that the Mishnah, the Gemara wants to discuss, which is what case does it come to include by having that extra clause? So again, we see this machlokas, uh, another machlokas between Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Akiva, that is sort of so supposed to explain to us, right, why they seem to have this sort of, you know, very different ways of interpreting the psukim. Uh, I'm going to move on then to the next Mishnah. And so now the Mishnah is going to list for us nine different circumstances where an unmarried woman makes a nether and there basically is no possibility of anybody revoking it. Okay, and what are they? The first three cases uh, follow. Bogeret vihi yitoma, a Bogeret who's an orphan in her husband's um, lifetime. Okay, so in other words, the first three cases are all going to involve evolve an orphan. So this would be a girl who entered Nisuin while she was still in Ara. okay? Um, so she leaves her father's jur- jurisdiction at the time of Nisuin, um, and, but she hasn't maintained, you know, attained full maturity. So that's why she can be compared to an orphan who lacks uh, a father, right? So this first case is basically somebody who made a vow um, uh, after, re- after becoming a Bogaret, since she left the jurisdiction of her father, this neder cannot be revoked, okay? But if she had made the vow before, but but she's not fully married yet either. So that's the problem. She's sort of in this in-between uh, phase. If she had made the vow before she was a Bogaret, right, it wouldn't, uh, she wouldn't even uh, be, and that's what it means by an orphan in her father's lifetime. She also couldn't be revoked either because 
this is the this is the idea that if you would become an orphan in her father's lifetime, again, this is a girl who enters Nisuin while still in the Ara, right? But she also was widowed or divorced. Um, so she left her father's jurisdiction at the time of Nisuin, right? But she doesn't return when the marriage ended ends. But she's still not a full Bogaret. So either a Bogaret who's an orphan in her father's lifetime, Naarahu Bagravihiotama, a Naarahu becomes a Bogaret. And then becomes an orphan in her father's lifetime. Or a Naara who has not become a Bogaret, who is also an orphan in her father's lifetime. So again, these are all cases that involve that at some point she leaves her father's jurisdiction by becoming, you know, uh, Nisuin, becomes widowed or divorced. She doesn't go back to her father's jurisdiction and she's sort of in this in between where she sort of still has ownership agency over herself. The second third of three cases, Bogaret Umetavia, a Bogaret whose father dies. Naura Bogaret Umetavia, Naura who becomes a Bogaret and her father died. Naura Shalobagra Umetavia, Naura who's not become a Bogaret and whose father died. So these are all cases that actually involve an actual orphan itself, right? In the first case, she made a Nedar when she was a Bogaret. In the second one, she made a Nedar when she was a Naura but becomes a Bogaret. And in the third, she makes a neder when a na'ra and is still a na'ra. The fact that her father died, right, means that her vows cannot be revoked regardless of her age. Um, and 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 that's basically the issue here. And then finally, na'ra shemeta via umishemeta via bagra. A na'ra whose father died and after her father died, she becomes a bogaret. Bogaret va'avia kayam, a bogaret whose father is alive. Na'ara Bogaret Va'avia Kayam, a Na'ara who became a Bogaret and whose father is alive. So these cases have to do with a father who, a girl basically leaving her father's domain, it has nothing to do with marriage, simply because uh, she becomes a Bogaret. And we know that this question of, you know, uh, uh, of him being able to revoke her vow is only when she's a Na'ara, not when she is a Bogaret. And finally, Rabbi Yehuda Omer, if one marries off his minor daughter, right, with Nisuin, she becomes widowed or divorced, but she returns to live with her father, then she actually is still considered a Na'ra, and he can revoke uh, her vows. Um, and the Gemara really doesn't have a lot of explanation on this because it's pretty self-explanatory, but I think it's interesting that the Gemara sort of, the Mishnah needs to really elaborate what are the cases where a woman, where a Naira or Bogaret actually does not fall, uh, does, can, the, her vows cannot be revoked. She basically ends up getting full agency, um, be, and generally it's dependent on the father, which is also what's interesting here. I think that mission is particularly interesting because it addresses this new category, which is, you know, a group of people we might have thought about anyway if we you know, has paused, you know, the question of what happens with an orphan, the question of what happens when there isn't somebody right there to revoke and, and never will be. Um, I'm going to go on to the next mission, the third of the three, where actually the condition of the the woman is swearing off, it, it gets more complicated. A woman says to her husband that she is swearing off benefit from either her own father or for the husband's father, from the father-in-law, in the event that he, she would prepare anything, that she would make anything for the husband. Meaning, 
if she doesn't make anything for the husband, there's no condition, and then there's no reason to think that she's sworn off the benefits from the father of the father-in-law. The mission goes on. Um... And so, likewise, this is the second case in this mission is that she, let's say this right, um, she cannot get benefit from her husband in the event of preparing for the father or the father-in-law, meaning making benefit from the husband a condition, either, either that it would be off-limits, in fulfillment of a different condition or that it itself is the condition that then she would be swearing off something else. Both of those kinds of scenarios, which are a little bit complicated, are the kinds of scenarios where the husband would indeed revoke the vow. Um, the Gemara here is going to explain this a bit. Tanya, she'nin henit la'abu im ani right? It takes this, there's a breiter that has this same kind of case. And the Gemara explains it, Rabbi Natan Omer, over there on the Breita, there's the question of whether the husband should should revoke it is really a dispute between Rabbi Natan. Can he do so or not? Right? As the Rabban the Rabbanim, the rabbis said that um that he can revoke her vow. Rabbi Natan says the husband cannot revoke the vow. She's obligated to do a certain amount of preparation and so on for the husband. And then what happens is that would put her in a case of being prohibited for whatever from the father and the father-in-law. So, but the point is then that the husband could not revoke the vow because it doesn't go into effect until that condition is met, in which case there's nothing to revoke yet, right? Meaning the fact that she's made a conditional vow really kind of, um, stirs the pot here in trying to figure out what his, what his, um, I don't know, right obligation capacity here is to revoke the vow. The bright goes on. So here we've got a case where the woman says to her husband, I am going to be separated off from the Jews, all Jews. If in, if I engage in sexual intercourse with you, meaning you, my husband, right? Um, the point being that the idea that her, in, she's not going to be able to have sexual intercourse with any Jew. And then, again, it's a little bit of a tricky case. I'm going to read the, the words here again. I'm kind of withdrawn from the Jews if I sleep with you, my husband. So what happens? Rabbi Natan says he cannot nullify this vow. Again, it's a conditional statement. And instead, she's got to, she's going to sleep with her husband as she's, you know, expected, obligated to do by virtue of their marriage. And then once she has done so, then she will be forbidden to all other Jews. Of course, this is a very strange statement because by virtue of being married, she's forbidden to everybody else anyway. So the puzzle here, again, this is the kind of thing that we would delve into in great de detail if we were doing, you know, a, a deep eun, right? A delving in kind of shiur. Um, of course, the rabbis say that he can revoke her vow because... You know, he, we can go through all the reasons that we've talked about at length. He has a vested interest, you know, <coughs> excuse me, it's not serving her well and so on. Okay. Um, there's one last case here, which kind of goes on to the next daf, but I'm going to read it anyway. 
You'll notice we're in Aramaic now, right? We've got a narrative. There's a certain man here who took a vow, and the vow is that he's prohibiting from himself all the benefit from the world, that he's swearing off everything, if if he would marry a woman um, when he had not yet learned halacha. Okay, this is, a again, a kind of a sweeping statement that he says, if he would marry this woman, if he hasn't learned the halacha, then he will be sworn off of any benefit in the whole world. How will that work? So he would run up the ladder. It seems to be a rope ladder. Um, and he would not be able to learn all that material meaning he's not doing well educationally here. He's failing. And then, So the Rav Rav Huna comes along, misleads him, lets him understand that if he took that vow, the vow would not take effect. And so then he ends up married to this woman, meaning kind of regardless of the fact that he had not learned this halacha. So I want to note that we're talking here about a case that really happened, right? And there's a lot of different ways that we can parse this particular passage. You know, how much do we treat this as an event that happened? How much do we treat this this ladder, this rope ladder? How much is it symbolic, right? And the commentaries will do indeed take different approaches to this particular passage. Um, just going on to the next, the top of the next stuff, just to finish this off. Vashark Tina. So what happens? Rav Achabar of Huna I, it's a very strange story. He smears him with clay. Tina, sometimes it's translated to be like a cement, something, you know, like he's going to be dirty from this, right? And it's somehow supposed to protect him from the elements because he can't wear clothing anymore because he's sworn off any benefit from the world because he's married this woman. And then they bring this man before Rav Chista. Note that the man does not have a name. Right? It's a ter- terribly embarrassing situation that he got himself into. So the Gemara is kind of, I think, discreet in not naming him. So Rav says, uh, meaning Rav Chista is supposed to de- de- um, negate the vow, right? Because the vow is untenable. Right? He can't live without getting any benefit from the whole world all the time forever. So Rav says, who's gonna who's wise enough here to take charge of this if not Rav Achabar Rav Huna? Meaning, why do you have to come to Rav Chista? You've already got Rav Achabar Rav Huna. Um, let me add Kiha Milta, he loved Rav Achabar Rav Huna. De Gavra Rabahu, because he is really a great man. De Kasavr, de Kihechi, de Plige Rabbanav, Rabbi Natan, Bahafara, Hachinami, Plige Besheela. So what happens, they say that the same way that Re, the, the Rabbanan, the rabbis, and Rav, Rabbi Natan, as we've seen, have this disagreement about when you can revoke a vow for this woman, for the woman who makes a vow. So likewise, there's a disagreement over when you have to go to the Chacham, to the Halachic Authority, to revoke a vow. So Rav Achabar of Huna right, might have like seems to have engineered it to make sure that this vow would go into effect so that the man would then be in such a situation that he would have to go and ask for it to be dissolved, which is, you know, you need a lot of like, first of all, you know, tricky acumen to to get to that conclusion, but also to make sure that that this man is not stuck in the limbo of having made a vow that in the event that it would come to pass, he would be stuck in the vow. Rather, Rav Achabar Rav Huna, 
Like, why is he doing all this business to, to trip him up? And the answer is, to, you trip him up. Then he can finally go and ask a Talmud Chacham um, to revoke the vow, to undo the vow, to nullify the vow, rather than leaving him in this limbo of a machloket, whether he would need to undo the vow. So I found that to be really a very interesting passage about, I guess, the subtleties, what can happen when somebody makes one of these vows that can, you know, really destroy your life. And what happens when you have sages who dispute what's supposed to happen next? In any case, that's our top discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.